Uh, hey, everyone. It is Russ Thornton, and welcome to another episode of Women's Retirement Radio. Today, uh, doing something a little bit different, something that I'm excited about. Um, I'm excited to be joined by Lisa Kaufman. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Glad um, to be here, Russ. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're joining us. So today's episode, we're going to is going to be the first of what I hope will be several installments or several conversations around the idea of um, serving as a caregiver. And that can be a caregiver for a spouse, for an aging parent, for another loved one or friend. Um, and what really prompted this was um, some really welcome feedback from a listener who said, uh, and I read, uh, one thing you might think about is a series directed towards women who are left in a caregiver role. Um, increasingly, it seems I know or have heard of women that aren't divorced, but are being put in the position of making decisions as the caregiver, and then subsequently having to make decisions on how to manage the finances they've been left with, good or bad. Uh, while it has some similarities, it's also a bit different than being divorced, just a thought. So um, I'm excited to have uh, Lisa. Uh, Lisa, by the way, joined uh, joined us on episode 19. So uh, please go back and listen to that. And you can hear all about uh, Lisa, her expertise, um, the work she does, um, the, the people on her team, etc. Um, having said that, Lisa, uh, why don't you give us a, a quick uh, intro to who you are and what it is you do? Okay. Uh, thank you. Again, it's great to be here. It's, I'm excited about this. I love that that uh, question from one of your, I guess, subscribers. Um, I'm an aging life care manager, and uh, some people may know that as a geriatric care manager. The really quick story is it's almost like a daughter for hire. Um, we are clinicians who are familiar with aging care and health care who serve as patient advocates. We do a thorough needs analysis, and we do some crisis management and case coordination. So all of those various pieces, we're here to really help quarterback, um, or one person put it, we're the air traffic controller for somebody's care so that we can help the person who's the primary caregiver make good decisions about the one they're caring for. And uh, that's, again, Lisa, there's no better person to have joining me to, to kick off this series of conversations than Lisa, um, because of the background she just shared. Um, and I can speak uh, firsthand, uh, having seen um, Lisa at work with some of my clients. Um, she's even done some help for my family personally, uh, and she's a wonderful resource. So uh, really excited to have her joining us. And what we wanted to do to kick things off, um, and Lisa and I were joking before we hit record, like we, we could easily get into the weeds and turn this into uh, an hours long conversation, but we're trying to very deliberately keep this um, short, succinct, concise, uh, and leave plenty to cover in future conversations with Lisa and with some other professionals that we hope to uh, to bring into the conversation as yeah. well. Um, but the first question we're going to start with start with is what Lisa referred to as the big one, uh, which is um, if you're uh, if you're if you need to care for your spouse or uh, another loved one, how do you know when it's time? To, and we'll use for this example, uh, we'll use the spouse. So we're, we're, we're talking about caring, uh, caregiving for a spouse. How do you know when it's time to move your spouse into a care facility? So, Lisa, why don't you uh, kick things off there? All right. And I, I it is the big one because it's such a loaded question and loaded topic. And I think that's probably one of the primary topics that people are, are concerned about is how do I know when it's the right time? It's a that's a tough one to tackle. Um, so one way you can help 
to know is certainly getting a care manager like myself and not plugging me, but having an expert take a look at what's going on. How are things happening in the home? Who's providing care? How much care is needed? Are you feeling burnt out? Are you um, hiring more care and it's starting to be more expensive and you're becoming more burnt out that as your loved one's dementia is changing? Those are all variables that go into the decision of, is it time to make a major change, like a move into an assisted living or hiring care for the home? Um, it's it's really a, a tough place to be. I sometimes share with families that it's the parable of the frog in the pot. Um, I'm going to give a, a quick, I'm sure that you've heard this or we've talked about this, but I'll go ahead for those who haven't heard of this, that if you put a frog in a pot and the, the water is already boiling, you put the frog in, he's going to hop right out. It's too hot. If you put a frog in a pot of just tap water and you turn on the heat, it will reach boiling and the frog won't notice the temperature change until it's too late and then they're soup. So I think caregiving is similar in some ways that there are gradual changes over time that we don't notice all of a sudden um, we're in over our heads because it's been we're adapting and it's been such a gradual change that we just keep doing what we've been doing until we get to a place where we're burnt out. So if you came to caregiving from a sudden change, maybe like a stroke or something that it's a huge difference, it's easier to see than dementia, which is so insidious and has such a long trajectory. Sometimes it's hard to know where is that line? So you have to decide for yourself and having a, a support, uh, an advisor um, help you determine where is my line? Because everybody's a little bit different. But some things to look at would be the cost of care, how much care, personal care, activities of daily living care your loved one needs, and how comfortable are you and they are with you providing that. So for spouses, that threshold may be different than for adult children. Um, for example, an adult child, say a son who has to provide personal care for his mother, and personal care, we're talking toileting, bathing, that kind of stuff. There may not be a comfort level with that. And there is no judgment about that. Um, that may be that line for that individual or that caregiving partnership. Whereas for a spouse, it might not be that big an issue um, of comfort level unless there's a place where the person, um, the patient, we'll just refer to that, the patient of the couple um, is no longer recognizing who this is or is having some issues around bathing or toileting that you might want somebody else who's trained to do that. Does that make sense, Russ? It does. And a couple of things that you shared that I really want to highlight. Um, okay. while, I, while I completely agree that there's tremendous value in bringing an expert to the table, someone that's seen and gone through and had these discussions uh, in the past uh, is super important. I think another possibly just as important factor is the objectivity because you're bringing in someone like Lisa or another professional that not only has experience, but also is not uh, as emotionally invested in yes. the relationship oh that does not bring uh, family history, family dynamics to the table, things yep. like that, which yep. I know, well, Lisa, you, you and I've discussed before yeah, we uh, have. at length. Um, could you share just kind of your perspective or your experience on some of the emotions that, that, are typically surfacing when this when when a spouse is faced with this decision and ways to maybe think about or 
to maybe try to reconcile those emotions? I think the biggest one that I hear most commonly and that it just makes the most sense is guilt. There's sang- sadness and anger, sanger, sadness and anger in there um, as well. And one of the things that I try to do with guilt um, is for the family member, whether it's a spouse or a child, this is a disease, whatever it is that's causing cognitive uh, changes. If it's some kind of dementia, some kind of, of cognitive deficit, if it was an injury or an illness, that is the most common way that older people develop cognitive impairment. It's nobody's fault, especially the disease process. Alzheimer's being the most common disease causing some kind of dementia. It just is what it is. So feeling guilty that you're not doing enough or that you're not fixing it, or that you're not somehow putting the pressure on yourself that you should be able to make it better or compensate for that person's deficits. That's a slippery slope, but a lot of people feel tremendous guilt. My feeling is on this, if you didn't break it, don't feel guilty about it. It's putting a lot of pressure on yourself and it's unrealistic and the expectations are so high. I think it's easier to reconcile that you're sad. This is not what I wanted. I didn't wanna be in this position. I wanted to be with my partner in my retirement and here I am a caregiver and we're not traveling. And this is not what I thought was coming at all. Well, then you're angry and sad and disappointed and frustrated. There are a lot of other emotions that you can address and label and maybe speak to a counselor about these feelings rather than guilt, which just kind of comes right back inside where you're not enough. And that's not true. It's also important to remember that there's a lot of care out there, especially when we feel guilty, like we need to be doing everything to make this better. No, it takes a village. You need a team approach to care for another adult human being who's no longer able to care for themselves. It is not something that one individual can really do in a healthy way. When you think about care that's provided in assisted livings, they have three shifts a day or hospitals. They have three shifts. So when you're at home and you're on 24-7, you don't have a break. Well, we all need a break. We need to sleep. We need time away and then time with that individual. So when you're feeling so guilty or maybe controlling that nobody can do it the way you would do it, that may be true, but people are trained to provide the level of care that's needed. You will always know your loved one better than anybody else, but other people will know how to provide care for them. And that should help. Yeah. And and thank you for that. A couple of things that you mentioned that I want to highlight. So um, for, for, for folks that I work with, with like my clients, we spend a lot of time planning and, you know, thinking about the future, um, thinking both about what we want to have happen, as well as thinking about what may happen. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone that's in good health today would ever uh, they, the idea might enter their mind, like what happens if uh, if I have to be in a caregiving role or my spouse or loved one uh, suffers cognitive decline or, uh, you know, has a, a, a physical um, situation where they need some kind of care beyond what I can provide. And I think that I think that's a great reminder about the um, the need to be flexible in your thinking and your planning. Uh, and so I think everything we're talking about could be encapsulated in that idea of of being uh, willing to be flexible and and not 
to Lisa's point, not feeling like you have to shoulder or uh, take the burden on yourself completely. Um, uh, one analogy I use, which is overused uh, at this point, is um, you know the like if you ever fly commercial, they always tell you, you need to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help others. Yes. Nowhere yeah. is that more appropriate than in the situation that we're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a great analogy. I think everybody can can really understand that. And I see it as, you know, if you're taking care of yourself and taking care of another person, you are burning the candle at both ends. And you can do that for short periods of time, but not for long periods of time. Our bodies are not built for that. And as we are aging, if you're caring for a spouse and you both have health concerns, it can create a tipping point very quickly. And there are some frightening statistics which don't ask me to quote them, I'd have to look it up. But I know that caregivers caring for somebody who has some kind of dementia are much more likely to become sick and ill and need their own care or, and I hate this part, they die before the person they were taking care of because they've burnt themselves out. They've made themselves sick. They had a heart attack. They had a stroke. Something happened. And now the person who relied on that primary caregiver doesn't have them anymore because they took it all on and didn't accept or look for help or some, you know, that's a judgment, but that not, not enough help was there and they had too much on their plate. Yeah. And I, what, what we want to discuss in, in a, in a future part of this conversation um, for another time is addressing more of the financial aspects Yes, Um, because beyond just the, the emotional toll, which can turn into physical and mental wear and tear on the caregiver. You also need to make sure that you don't jeopardize your own finances. Oh, absolutely. Um, in the effort to care for, you know, your spouse or your loved yep. one. Um, or your parent. Uh, to it, that point, I've, I've worked with uh, families in the past that they retired early. They were still in their primary um, earning, the high earning potential years, uh, middle age. Hello. Um, so they retired early to their own detriment so that they could take care of their loved ones so their loved one didn't have to spend any money. I, I'm as the objective person, I'm like, this doesn't make any financial sense. It does for that person that you're saving them the care, but they will die one day. We all will. And here you have missed out on your earning potential and your own retirement savings. And I think that that's a very, it's a difficult and very personal choice, but there are alternatives to that. There absolutely are. And, uh, and, and, and again, those are things we'll tackle in a, in a future part of this, uh, this series of conversations. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think today we really wanted to just set the groundwork or set the table for um, this, this huge issue um, that more and more people are de- dealing with. I mean, as a backdrop to all this, because of advances in technology and medicine, people are living longer. Yes, the challenge is they're not always living longer in a uh, in You're a healthy well. right. They're not living well. They're not. They don't have their mobility. They don't have their health. They they're going right. to have to re- rely in- increasingly on family or the healthcare system to care for them. And um, that's there's a lot of moving parts there. Um, the, there not the least of which are the finances, the emotions, the, mm-hmm. you know, self care uh, in mm-hmm. that process. And uh, those are all things we want to address um, in future installments in this series. Yeah. So yeah. I think, 
I think today we've done a pretty good job of, of kicking things off, Lisa. Anything, so. uh, anything else you'd like to add uh, or any closing thoughts uh, for our oh, conversation gosh, today? I, ha- I have a lot, but um, <laughs> you know that we're not in it alone. And to not isolate yourself, we've been isolated for two years now, and there is a huge burden that caregivers especially are feeling during this time because aging continues we're still aging in place or illness or whatever still keeps going, even though we're, you know, we were locked down and now people have been largely isolated and and social norms are not what they were. Care is still available. A a team approach is still available. I I think, you know, we're right before Thanksgiving. I have no idea when this is going to be posting. Having a conversation with your family, it's a tough conversation, but it's a very real, authentic, genuine way to touch base with your family to talk about what do you what are you worried about? What do you what do you want? What do you want for your loved one? Um, so many of us assume that somebody knows what our wishes are, or they're afraid to have the conversation because they're superstitious. It will bring something on. It won't have the conversation. Just start the dialogue. Decisions do not need to be made. Just make it open to have that conversation. I could agree more. I think uh, I think that's a a great parting thought and a great place to wrap up this uh, this first conversation, uh, first of, of of several. I hope. Um, yeah, Lisa, thank you. This is fun. I always Thanks enjoy talking us. with you, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm I, super happy to be working on on this little project with you. I so. am too. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. And uh, for everyone out there listening, we would love your feedback. So if, if, if upon listening to this, uh, if this spurs additional questions or thoughts or comments, uh, please get in touch. Let me know. Um, otherwise, I uh, appreciate you listening in and look forward to catching you on the next episode of Women's Retirement Radio. Awesome. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, Lisa. It's Russ again. And before you go, I want to provide a brief disclosure. You should consult a financial advisor familiar with the specific circumstances of your unique financial situation before making any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Any mentioned rates of return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future returns. I'm a financial advisor and an investment advisor representative of Wealthcare Capital Management, LLC an SEC-registered investment advisor based in Richmond, Virginia. The views discussed in this podcast are my own and may not be consistent with or represent those of Wealthcare Capital Management.